Welcome to the Voices in Bioethics podcast. I'm Jennifer Cohen, and it's my pleasure today to interview Awele Michael Utomi, a student in the Master's of Bioethics program here at Columbia University. Awele, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Awele, you have a fascinating background in healthcare and biotech research, but before we get to that, I'm hoping you can tell us about your personal background. You were born and grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, correct? Yes, that's correct. And can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up there and how you decided to leave and come to America to study? Of course. And that's like a very interesting story for me personally, especially now that I'm actually preparing for medical school interviews. It's something that comes up more often than not. And I would say that for me, like that decision kind of started from my environment growing up in Lagos and my own personal family struggles. So I'll first start with the personal. My mom actually suffered from ankylosis motilitis when we were younger. Uh, my dad also had hypertension. So my family had his own um, share of health issues that made it imperative for us to, you know, to spend time in the hospital with doctors much more often than most of the other people that, you know, in my background, you know, would spend from. I mean, my background, I mean, like um, a middle-class family, you know, my dad and my mom both have master's degrees, but they both run a business. And for me, growing up in Lagos, Nigeria, meant that you were exposed to all of the realities of the situation, right? So I could say that I was a little bit better in a little way, like a little more prepared instead of my, that, you know, there was, I could go to school, I could afford to myself and my, my third siblings to school, that there was still always, you know, that struggle, you know. And for me, I remember that distinctly because those issues were like huge stories and uh, or huge like issues that we had to really like, you know, go through and it really defined most of my childhood. And, you know, and it kind of got me like a more personal interaction with medicine and with science as a young boy growing up. And like, I would always wonder, you know, because for me, my mother didn't get diagnosed with that condition until I actually was in my first year of college. So like we had known that there was an issue because she was getting mobile, she wouldn't be able to move and everyone who had to, you know, chip in too, you know, to help her with that. So for me, it kind of started that, you know, fascination with, okay, how is this happening? Like, why can't they find something for it? Like, what's you know, what's missing? And, you know, and for me, even though that in school and, you know, at home, I didn't really have any scientists in my personal or in my circle or in my family, those questions kept on coming up in my dad, in my mom, and even around me, because I would see that many people that I knew growing up, they never saw a doctor. They would go to pharmacists to get, you know, drugs, you know, self-medication, whatever, you know, they needed to feel better. It was definitely hard for people that I knew to even, like, go to hospital to see a doctor because like that was seen as very expensive there were very very few government hospitals the few ones that were there had long lines you no know, long wait periods so i got very accustomed to you know to waiting in those lines you know and even like you know looking for fundraisers looking for money for my family to you know to fund you know these things that you know we we're talking about and that's kind of like my introduction to that you know from my own personal environment from going to school, seeing those disparities and the inequities that kind of defined who got access to healthcare. And it kind of set me off on this journey because I knew I wanted to do research and I knew I wanted to do medicine. I knew I wanted to bring those two together because like, I feel like for myself and my background, there's kind of this gap between the African, like in the traditional methods and of course, like the Western methods. And we haven't quite bridged that the way that we can see like the Chinese have bridged that, you know, with malaria and, you know, and the drugs that don't know. Like mentioning that, you know, Chinese traditional medicine with you know, your Western traditional ways of, you know, of clinical research. Like, I feel like it's important to find that synergy. So that's kind of like the, 
impetus for that. And even though I didn't have that in high school, you know, I managed to convince my teachers to, to send me opportunities, you know, to write scholarship exams and, you know, all of that in my final year. And it was writing one of those exams that I was able to get a scholarship to study for the SAT and eventually secure admissions to the U.S. And that was all paid on scholarship because my family couldn't really do that. So for me, that was like a huge opportunity. And, you know, from there, I got a scholarship to Howard. And that's kind of how, you know, I actually ended up in the U.S. Such an inspiring story. So as you say, you attended Howard University, which is one of this country's premier research institutions and an HBCU, an historically black college and university. You spoke a little bit about your ability to get your teachers to help you and to have this dream come true. But how did you specifically decide on Howard as the place you wanted to study science and then eventually prepare yourself to apply to medical school? Yeah, that's actually an interesting um, tale on its own because I actually did not decide on Howard. So it was actually the school that chose schools for our class, you know, best and brightest. And the school is called MET, Training Limited. And they were actually the ones that chose the schools based on, you know, the probability of getting scholarships, your past success rate with previous students. And, you know, Howard happened to be the one out of the four or five schools that they chose for me that you know, gave me full scholarship. So actually interesting story was that my friends and I, when we were on our way, because we all went to Howard, when we went away to the U.S., we actually did not know that Howard was in HBCU until, you know, we landed in Washington, D.C. And it was a very interesting contradiction when we got to campus expecting the opposite of what we saw. And, of course, that surprised turned out to be one of the best decisions that I feel like I made because Howard definitely gave me the space and the environment to make to the U.S., you know, the DMV area, which is the D.C., Metropolitan um, DC, Maryland, Virginia area also, you know, has a huge African community. So it definitely made it easier for me to acclimate to the US. I was like, you know. So interesting. And how did you decide after Howard to come to Columbia? Coming to Columbia was also very much a product of just my environment. I was in my final semester at Howard and I took a class called Senior Seminar Class, which is like a required class for my biology degree. And in that class, we had a very amazing professor, Dr. Fatima Jackson. And we were talking about social justice. You know, there's so many issues. And this was back then. And I feel like now it's much more to the forefront. But even then, there was, you know, there were so many issues that we could see that were wrong. You know, we, we talk about police brutality in the U.S. We talk about, you know, the number of, you know, number of black men and, and, and women, you know, and all just, you know, different kind of things. And we were just talking about these things and we we're trying to say, okay, how do we in, you know, in the scientific world, you know, how do we you know, advocate for this? Because of course you have your different ways, but like, it seems like there wasn't any field in medicine or in science to do that. And that's where she started talking to us about bioethics. And I was really intrigued in the field because it seemed like I should have known about it even before graduating, but it had taken me that long of a time to find about it. And, you know, from that class led on to, you know, finding about scholarships, you know, to support. And the Columbia HBCU Fellowship was new at the time, about two years old. And she sent me the link to Dr. Jackson, you know, to apply for it and some other programs. And, you know, I went through the whole application process and that was how, you know, I came to, you know, to decide on that. So I specifically look for programs that offer bioethics and that offered, you know, funding for that. And Columbia HBCU Fellowship was like, you know, one of the, the major ones. And I was, I'm really happy to be a graduate now, you know, finished with the program. And it's, it's an amazing fellowship. And I can't, you know, recommend it even like more highly. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. As you say, you're an HBCU fellow during the program. Did you find that experience exciting or were there aspects of it that surprised you being a fellow? It was definitely like a huge learning curve for me. 
it seemed that throughout the course of my educational journey, I've continued to, you know, to go to like higher institutions. I remember like I went to a public school for high school in Lagos. And I remember just how different it was for us, you know, compared to students that went to private schools. And I definitely noticed in terms of like the resources, you know, in terms of like practical classes or like science, knowing that your practical class might not have necessary materials or, you know, I kind of grew up with all of that. And so like, for me, like, it's kind of reinforced the idea that even just as I continue to go to these spaces. And, and for me, like going to Columbia University was definitely a huge change. Personally, I was in New York, so I was definitely a little bit, you know, estranged from my immediate, you know, family that I had built up in the U.S. while I, I was at Howard. And even just like, you know, how Columbia is a huge school, you know, it's one of the top schools. So for me, like coming and looking at how I look and, you know, coming from where I come from, like it was definitely a lot that I had to get used to overcome, you know, that feeling of imposter syndrome, you know, reaching out to professors, feeling like you're worthy to be in the classroom and, and I feel like it was a huge learning curve for me. And the fellowship helped a lot because, like, you know, we had this immediate family immediately getting into the fellowship and into the university that, okay, hey, like, this is 28, 29 other fellows that you can call your family, you know, mm. all from agencies all across the, the U.S. So it was definitely an interesting mesh of people where, you know, and ideas and everyone is in New York. And this was pre-COVID-19, of course. So we you had to adapt to all of that. So it was definitely a huge learning curve for me. And like, there are a lot of things I had to get to, but like, I, I wouldn't trade it for like, you know, anything else. Wonderful. Okay, let's turn to your work as a researcher. Talking about your learning curve at Howard, you were inducted into Phi Beta Kappa, the most prestigious academic honor society. And that's where you began your career as a researcher. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you worked on while a student at Howard? Yes. And I believe you're referring specifically to research project, right? Yes. Of course. Yes. So I was very much involved in research at Howard because, you know, like that was my whole reason for going to the U.S. in the first place to try and get a more practical understanding of research projects to conduct that. And I already knew that I couldn't get that at home. I had spoken to people back home, you know, even studying medicine at the University of Lagos, which was where I was, which is where I applied for medicine and I actually was accepted to before or would give me a scholarship. And like, for me, like wearing those things was important for me. So immediately like, I got to Howard, you know, I immediately started searching for things. And of course it was hard being an international student and, you know, coming all the way from Nigeria. So it was, there was a lot that I had to do to, you know, even like prove to people that, you know, that I was worried of it. And of course, like, Howard gave me a bunch of opportunities. I, my first lab was actually in a neurobiology lab with um, Dr. Mark Burke. And, you know, under him, we, we kind of looked at pediatric HIV infections We're using monkeys as our test subject in monkeys. It's called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. And, you know, we applied, you know, immunofluorescence techniques, you know, we studied their brain cells, you know, and we, their brain tissues. And we kind of, you know, looking for those markers or looking for those probes that we could use as indicators. And for me, like, that was also like a very, very big opportunity and like big and eye-opening time for me because I was learning how to become a scientist, taking the things I was learning from my theoretical work to, you know, to the practical world, and, you know, learning new techniques, you know, learning how to time manage. Also, like, you know, even like just with interacting with, you know, with um, the lab equipment and technology, because of course, like all these things are all expensive. So, you know, even like the, any mistake you made is, you know, is always going to be expensive to the PI, but, you know, I had a great understanding PI. So that was kind of like my first introduction to research and it was big for me. I actually worked there for three years and I also worked at a computational biology lab with Dr. Campbell. And under him, he had discovered this mass PRF method to people with mutations of um, neurodegenerative diseases, you know. And so, like, and in that lab, that was my introduction to data science. I learned MATLAB. 
attended a conference at MIT to kind of get up to date on that. And I was looking for gender signatures of policy selection that were critical to human evolution. So we were comparing both human and um, chimpanzee's DNA. Chimpanzee's DNA is supposed to be 95%, you know, close, our close relation. And we're looking for, you know, those changes to see if there were any specific data in the pathogenesis of diseases like that. I know we're looking at Alzheimer's, you know, and for me, like, that was a huge thing because I came from a very biological background. And even though, like, in my research up to that point, I had all done wet labs. So this, that was like, my first time, you know, looking at Python and Arrow, you know, and getting this knowledge of, you know, digital health and like that would eventually, you know, drive my decision to, you know, to eventually push more clinical research, you know, in the future. And I was also able to, you know, to get internships at Princeton and um, at Genentech during that time. So fascinating. Now, while you were finishing the bioethics degree, you were also working in pharma at Genentech. What type of work were you doing there? Yes. And Genentech, I actually, this is my second stint. In my first time, I got some internship there and I was in the developmental sciences department and I worked on that clinical pharmacology. And in that specific space, I looked at data sharing platforms in the sense that, you know, of course, all up to like now and in the past few years, we've seen an increase in the pharma industry being more open to sharing information about clinical trials. And before then, you would have, you know, different companies, you know, doing the same trials, you know, wasting those same funds, but them not knowing about it because they're all siloed from each other. So now there's a more collaborative approach to doing research and clinical research. And we've seen that, you know, in COVID-19 this year with the unprecedented, you know, level of collaboration between pharmaceutical companies, sharing information in real time, preprints, you know, and we've seen that increase. And, and that's kind of why I looked at it. And, and this is an industry-wide effort. It's still an industry-wide effort and it was called Transcelerate. And I worked on the placebo database specifically. So I, my database was comprised, you know, different, almost like 20 major pharmaceutical companies and, you know, we're looking at real-world data, trying to get those historical data from clinical trial control arms. And the idea was that if we could get all of these control arms into this database, in one central database from different pharmaceutical companies, that would save costs eventually because, like, there will be no need to conduct actual placebo trials because you already have that data for whatever indication that you were trying to look for. So it was usually collaborative. I was able to know you to, like, to talk to different kind of people, you know, to learn different kind of things, to, you know, get more insight into the biotech world and clinical research. Okay, let's turn to your career as a bioethicist. You've spoken already about the struggles you faced and your family faced when you were growing up in Nigeria to get your parents health care and access to health care. What do you think your Nigerian perspective brings to your study of bioethics here in the U.S. and in New York City specifically? I think I'll start by saying that bioethics is only as powerful as the different strands of thoughts that he allows or culturally divergent viewpoints that he allows to be included in his body of work. Because again, bioethics very much is about the people. It's about morals, about the ethics of things. But I feel like even beyond that, like it's really about how people interact and, you know, and the, the rules and the regulations governing those interactions. And for me, I, I really brought my own personal background to this because like, again, the only way to make things relevant to you is to, you know, to make them personal, to turn them from like a general to like the specific, like why is that important to you? And for me, I saw bioethics as a way to espouse some specific African ideas and ideals, and even more specifically, like to bring to the forefront in terms of our medical dealings back home, because of course, it's still very much a nascent field back home and there's a lot of education, you know, going on right now, you know, increasing idea and uh, increasing awareness of the topic. So it was very much, you know, even 
from that senior seminar class that I took, seeing that there were not enough people and enough voices like me speaking in the field, you know, and specifically for our issues. Because again, you can only speak about the issues that you're intimate about. And I think that having that personal connection to that was um important to me, you know, for talking about, you know, clinical trials, talking about, you know, paternalism in medicine, informed consent, you know, like how important is the family to that? Because for us, and I'm sure that and many other cultures are not been like special about that, but, you know, the family is important as opposed to the idea of, you know, person, um, autonomy that Western ethics kind of espouses. And of course, the individual is also important, but, you know, because just trying to manage those different ideas and like express them in a way that I know that will be relevant to my community and my environment is kind of like my take into all of this. And I was really able to explore this in my time at Columbia and my physics was actually on African bioethics. And it was a huge body of work. And I actually feel like there's a lot of like research to be done. So it's in no way like conclusive or even like definitive, you know, so it was interesting to see and, you know, to, to get involved, you know, from that, you know, side. Mm, as you say, it's a nascent field in, in Africa and in Nigeria. A terrible ethics violation occurred in Nigeria in 1996. It's one we study at Columbia, where a Pfizer clinical trial of an antibiotic used to treat pediatric meningitis resulted in the deaths of a number of children, and there were allegations of falsification of trial results and a failure to obtain informed consent. There were multiple lawsuits. Pfizer ended up paying a $75 million settlement, and there have been books and a film made based on this scandal. Did that case start to raise awareness around bioethical issues in Nigeria? Is Bioethics, something that's taught in medical schools, if you know, in Nigeria? So to my knowledge, is definitely something that is taught. And I do think that in my research so far, that just based on the size of the country specifically, it has like a little bit more awareness of it compared to other places where we're seeing, you know, a lot of grants from here, you know, to support people that stay there and like, you know, to let to enable them to learn more about biophics. And I also know it's, it's definitely taught in medical schools because I have friends in medical schools that, you know, that tell me about these things. But again, like it's still like an ongoing body of work to come up with our own frameworks, you know, to make it more personal to us, the way that we've seen bioethics publications, you know, in Asia, you know, kind of really dive deep into the topic and, you know, to merge those two I guess, ideas and ideals and to make it relevant to us. I feel like there's still a challenge in trying to understand how relevant it is to the region and even to how it will govern, you know, like clinical trials and all of that, you know. So to talk about, for example, like Nigeria, when it comes to clinical trials, we have a number of bodies that are responsible for, not really unlike RRB boards here in the US, but you have like a number of boards that do that. But again, there is still a lot of gaps in between, you know, how binding their recommendations are, how stringent they are, you know, like, and there's no way they can sidestep that back on. So I do think that there is more awareness of it, at least specifically in Nigeria than everywhere else, you know, and I think South Korea and like other places too, most of the places that clinical trials is usually done, but it's still very much a field that is, that's new in that sense. Okay. Let's turn to your commitment to social justice movements. Um, As you've already discussed, you were aware of health disparities and social disparities growing up and how this affected people's health. There's been some tragic news from Nigeria recently. A number of young protesters were shot and killed in the streets of Lagos while protesting police brutality. And these protests have been going on for years against a division of the police called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, which is a bizarre coincidence given the name of the pandemic. But this police division has been abused of torture and abuse. And I believe 
as a result of the protest, it's just been disbanded, and there's now an official inquiry into the division. Can you give us some more detail about the nature and the goals of the protests? And were you in contact or aware of any of the protesters who were injured or tragically died? And yeah, like that, that entire happening is it's still very raw to me as it's not been, it's only been a couple of weeks since that D-Day when the Nigerian government, you know, unleashed the military and soldiers, innocent protesters and, you know, the number of videos of that on on Twitter. And for me, I think that I can only speak from my experience specifically because I, I was here in the US when this was all happening, not, you know, back home, but everyone else, like the entire world and the diaspora, you know, connected, you know, on social media to this happenings. And we saw, you know, we saw the videos you know, we saw the live cast of this whole, you know, issue. And we saw how it played out and, you know, all of the lies and, you know, the different ways that the media even, you know, he painted it initially before, you know, starting to, you know, put pressure on the government. And it's still very much a very sad and raw issue for me personally because I, like almost everyone else that has family there, you know, we were scared for them. We were hoping that it wouldn't get volatile because, you know, the entire... Uh, especially because like it was all centrally located, specifically in Lagos, with protests happening all across the nation. And for us, like it was, and if I'm not mistaken, the biggest protest movement we had, protests in almost every state. And we've never had that level of record. And, and for me, despite all the negatives, I also know of, you know, people from high school, they were missing up at the protest and that we couldn't, you know, really reach out to them or know what it was because we didn't know which hospital they took them to. I mean, there was so much uncertainty in that time. Everyone was scared. You had people that when they were at home, you know, they were still, you know, getting harassed, you know, and people took advantage of that volatility to like to cause panic, to loot. So like there was a lot, a lot of sadness and, you know, anger just going on at that time. But I definitely started the process because like, I feel like we've, and at least even right now, I've seen just the resilience that they have shown in that time, you know, something that I never thought would be possible growing up. There's much more awareness and right now, like the initial goals were they had, you know, a list of demands that they had for the federal government, including, you know, the dissolution of SARS, you know, eradication of the officers, a citizen's kind of body to investigate all the abuses. And also like ensuring that those soldiers that had committed crimes, like the specific ones that we had named for that, you know, that they were brought to justice. So there were, there were a number of requests that the protest was kind of aimed at. And initially, we saw that that kind of, again, because it's not the first time this issue has been going on for a minute. It's been going on for the past three, four years. And it's only reached like a zent now because with Nigerian government saying in 2017, 2018 that, you know, they would cancel SARS and, you know, they had all this announcement and they were not really able to, you know, to make certain things. So at least right now, we're seeing that there will be probably more protests, but we're seeing now that we can do that, that we can organize and hold our elected leaders, you know, to account. But there's still a lot of, you know, work to be done in terms of organizational, you know, support. And that's why I believe that even for our magazine, Voices in Effects, we have, I know that there was a number of articles on our website about that. And that's why I haven't shared, you know, the links on how to support the protests, all of that, because it's still very much an issue that affects everyone, you know, despite the fact that it's only, you know, in Nigeria, the same way that the political brutality here in the U.S. in affect the entire world. So it's, that in just anyways, you know, it's something that we all should be concerned about. And it's terrible to see the impunity that the government has kind of, you know, meted out on, like, innocent protesters. So we all see how that goes. But I'm, I'm very optimistic that this, this is, like, you know, a new dawn for us. Nigeria is a very much a youth country. It's almost 60% young people. So it's very much a time for us. And yet we're being represented by very old leaders that have led, you know, in, in our military regime like years ago, you know. 
So it's it's very much a time that we're seeing that we need to, you know, to take our country into our own hands. And like, I'm very, very proud of my peers, you know, back home and I support in different ways and like sharing awareness. And you can see that, that everyone is very, very committed about it, very, very passionate about it, you know. So there are definitely positives we take despite the negativity and the tension that is happening. Thank you for that perspective. So let me turn now to the pandemic and its effects in Nigeria. There have been a little over 1,000 deaths in Nigeria as a result of COVID. And Nigeria is a country with a population of nearly 200 million people. So that seems like the country has done a good job containing the virus. How would you say the pandemic has affected Nigeria? I would say very much like the rest of the world severely. I do think that, yes, from a number standpoint, we have done a good job of that. And I think the entire West African region, just based from the Ebola epidemic a few years ago, you know, they have, you know, the systems in place and, you know, coming from that early time. So I do think that they were a little more prepared than many news reports and, you know, and even myself, you know, gave them credit for taking the lessons from that epidemic. But I would say that in terms of like the economic situation that, you know, it's terrible and we can say that illustrated in a number of ways, and of course, along with the protests, it's increased prices. We've seen people laid up because they can't go to work. I know everyone can work from home. There's a number of issues we've seen, even like with children and like school closures and like not being able to have, you know, the support like I would have here, maybe going to Colombia or anywhere else, you know, to be able to attend school from home. Like only based on your, the kind of school, like, you know, and the money that it has, you know, the class. It's like, so there's like a huge class gap in how this is affected, you know, and like, I kind of like pushed people closer to the brink but in terms of the numbers i do think that there's been a good job of that but then, then again that can be explained by maybe not as much testing as the u.s or some of the other countries has done but like i don't think that we can take that away because like if it was bad in terms of the numbers thing that we would know that but it definitely not been too bad and already we're seeing now that the number of things speaking about open reopening there's like churches reopened you know you have supermarkets opened and of course in schools already started to reopen there's definitely a bit of rosy news on that point compared to the rest of the world um, at this time. Mm. And my last question, Awele, where do you see yourself making the biggest impact as a bioethicist? I think where I can make the biggest impact as a bioethicist is exploring that space between medicine and bioethics and, of course, social justice. And I mean to the sense that, like, even beyond raising awareness of bioethics and social issues, I mean to the sense of empowering our people to get more involved, you know, in the field and, and more involved, you know, in speaking up and in documenting these things and in creating the ways of thought, you know, the paradigms and the paradigms, the ways of thinking, you know, to really support and, you know, to bring it to close. But for me, I think I can make the biggest impact as a bioethics by exploring that space between clinical research medicine and bioethics, but especially in the local context. Like I've said, and of course, right now at, at Genentech, we're looking at issues of last mile problems, trying to figure out how COVID has impacted cases and also affected, you know, people's availability to vaccines and drugs, you know. And of course, a major issue has been increasing, you know, manufacturing output of the facilities um, in the region. So like for me, that's kind of where I see myself making a huge impact, you know, merging my own background, you know, you know, the computation and the digital healthcare, which is, I think, is one of the, the major trends, you know, personalized medicine and bring that whole way of thinking, you know, to the region. Because I do think that there is the opportunity to grow my awareness of it, create more initiatives, you know, and kind of solidify what it means for us and how to affect the different processes that we do. So there's definitely a lot of, of space, I think, that and like it's not even clearly defined by doing that biopics would be a huge part of, of wherever I do in terms of like you know trying to alleviate and reduce that gap in healthcare. 
Awili Utomi, thank you for sharing your fascinating background with us and best of luck in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me.